Today's podcast is sponsored by Google. Parents want their children to be more safe and confident explorers of the digital world. But sometimes it can be tricky to find the balance. So Google created Be Internet Legends. It's a free learning program that teaches children online safety skills through PSHE accredited resources for teachers and a fun online game for families too. In partnership with Parent Zone, Be Internet Legends has reached over 70% of UK primary schools with its free toolkits and school assemblies. To find out more and see how Google's resources can help your school, search Be Internet Legends. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics and now the Joe Biden presidency. We will be looking at how a 78-year-old president will change America and we'll be asking if normalcy, which is what he promised to bring, has returned to American politics. The answer, of course, is no. We are delighted to be joined today by Victor Davis Hanson, who is a very distinguished American commentator, a historian and a classicist, and author most recently of The Dying Citizen, How Progressive Elites, Tribalism and Globalization Are Destroying the Idea of America. Victor, I'd like to get on sort of the substance of your book in a second, but first of all, could you just give us a little bit of an appraisal of how you think the Biden presidency is going? Because the polls suggest the popularity he had at the beginning of his administration is vanishing very quickly. Yeah. Well, I think his problem was that he adopted a series of policies that from the outset did not have nearly 50% approval, and that would be an open border, the skedaddle from Afghanistan, the inflationary print money policies, cutting back on two and a half million barrels of oil, et cetera, et cetera, and critical race theory, all of that. And he was kept afloat because he still had promulgated this myth of good old Joe Biden from Scranton, the moderate we all knew for 30 years. And he did that because he didn't really campaign and he outsourced his campaign to the hard left. He kind of did a Faustian bargain. You know, I'll carry you across the finish line and then I'll give you the agenda. But now what's happened is both because of cognitive issues and sort of an angry, get off my grass, old man scowl about him. And the fact that he's not there, his personal popularity is now well below 50%. So it's not able to counteract his unpopular and they work in tandem as force multipliers. So we had him in the Zogby poll at 36%. At 36% under our system, that means that every two years, the 435 representatives and one third of the Senate 33 members of the Senate, if their party head is under 33 or 35 or 36, whatever in that area, unless they're in an entirely, you know, plus 20 district Republican or Democrat, they're not viable. So what we're starting to see are House members that are say in plus five Democratic districts, not to mention even or or minus five, they are starting to get very uneasy. And I think we're reaching peak woke by necessity, not by desire. Well, I mean, it's possible that Donald Trump, you point out in your writing, he was in many ways an effective president, but his popularity was never particularly strong. No. But it seems now that Biden could soon be under him. He's almost there now. In fact, in some polls, he's under Donald Trump. But the big difference, remember, is that Donald Trump's policies were very popular. It was almost a disconnect where people would say they love the economic 52, 53 percent 
but the tweeting and the queen's brash accent and the gratuitous making fun of people that would bring him down but not his policies across the board every policy as i said from energy to the border to foreign policy was up and so what's different about biden is it's hard to see how his policies can revive him in the way that trump would would hit a bottom but his policies were so popular that that he never really got below that floor of 36 or 37. And so with Biden, I think there's no limit to how far he can fall because some of these policies, we're, we're looking at five to 7% inflation and that's generous given it doesn't calculate or incorporate housing and cars and appliances, lumber, things that everybody uses. You know, when you deliberately cut back the largest oil production, in the history of civilization and gas, and you're headed into winter and prices here in California for us are astronomical at $5 a gallon. And then you, you compound that with a supply chain. And the problem with the supply chain isn't the empty shelves at Walmart. It's the pictures of 70 of these huge 100,000 ton container ships stacked in a row, you know, like dominoes off the port of Los Angeles or Savannah or Houston. So there's a sense that we're not doing something right. And we've never had this happen before. So I guess that's what everybody says. We haven't had this happen before. We've never voluntarily spiked oil prices. It was always the Saudis or the Russians or somebody. But we did this. We did this to our supply chain. We did this to our racial relations. So it's a self-inflicted wound. And then $64,000 question was, was it inevitable given the pathologies of our society? And we were just waiting for somebody like Biden to trigger it, that whole terrible year of 2020, or are we fundamentally a resilient country and we can survive this and get back to business? Well, there are a couple of areas in which Biden is not necessarily pursuing what you might call a woke or globalist agenda. I mean, on immigration, although in the early phases, it very much looked like it was heading towards a sort of amnesty, very left-wing policy. He seems to have realised, or his administration seems to have realised, that that's a mistake, and they are actually now, I believe, copying a lot of Trump policies. Is that not right? Yeah, right? it's sort of right. What they're doing now because of the optics is that they are trying to very quietly assure reporters that while they demonise the idea that refugees had to apply for refugee status in the countries of their origin, now they're going to go back to that. And they're trying to reach out to foreign presidents and heads of state in Central America, especially Mexico, to help police the border. But they have not, where this is happening is right where the wall ended in Texas. And the materials for the wall are paid for and rotting right on the ground. They're not going to rebuild that wall. And we do have 2 million immigrants. And what I mean by optics, they're flying young underage immigrants into New York, to take one example, not telling people. And they're doing that in California where I am. So in my community, there are people literally coming in from the border in central California that are illegal, unvaccinated, with no skills, no English. And so they're trying to change the optics, but they're not able, they're hamstrung, they're emasculated by their left. If they were to say, this is a disastrous policy and we are not going to get elected, therefore we're going to continue the wall and start to get rid of catch and release and arrest people and deport them, then they would not have their 20% radical base, which is what they depend on to turn out and gin up enthusiasm and harass people. 
One area where the optics were certainly not good was the withdrawal of Afghanistan. But nonetheless, there was a sense that Biden was doing what Trump voters, what Trump-Biden voters, and there were a few of them, what those voters wanted, which was to... Yeah, uh, the difference was this, is that everybody in the United States thought 20 years in Afghanistan is enough of nation building, and they're either going to fall. And there were some people left and right and said, you know, this might be in the long run good, because as you see now, the Taliban can't govern, and it's chaos. So they're either going to have to call in foreign people and make amends, or they're going to have a revolution or a civil strife. But the way in which it was done is what we're talking about. It was so humiliating. And this man was supposed to be an internationalist, and he so humiliated the NATO allies. 8,000 of them had no idea that the United States, usually who leaves last, headed for the exits first in a very selfish manner. And this was Joe Biden, the NATO supporter. But most importantly, there were things about the evacuation that fueled or fed into this narrative on other issues. For example, $85 billion of weaponry just abandoned at a time when we're talking about budgetary concerns, or 100,000 refugees flown in without vaccinations, guarded or escorted by soldiers who will get a dishonorable discharge, even if they've had COVID and have immunity if they don't get vaccinated very soon. Or General Milley and the Pentagon brass talking in woke terms such as, I wanna assure you that when they arrive, they will have culturally sensitive food or they will have proper gender ratios or as they leave pictures of George Floyd murals in Kabul or a gender studies program at the time of weakness. So people came to these military people, intelligence people, investigatory people are distracted. They're, they are politically obsessed with this woke and their careers and they're not doing their job. They're like Soviet commissars, you know, that inspect ideological purity at the expense of the efficacy of particular cabinets and agencies. This gets us onto the theme of your book, which is that this progressive elite, you argue, is slowly wearing away the nature of the American citizenry. Is that not your argument? That's a theme that there were certain historical ingredients to citizenship in the West, in the United States in particular. One was a large, viable middle class to check the power of the subsidized poor and the elite rich that leverage government for influence. That is by every metric, economic, cultural, political, social is waning the power of the middle class. And then you have to have secure borders to have a sacred space for citizenship to be inculcated and traditions to be kept alive. We don't anymore, Southern border doesn't exist. And then tribalism is a pre-civilizational idea. All the classical authors talk about civilization being the point in which people did not self-identify by their superficial appearance, but by a common civic identity. We've lost that now in the United States. And then in the second half of the book, very quickly, the elite, these were the bottom up organic forces that destroyed citizenship. But from the top down, we created this sort of Versailles-like 2 million person federal workforce. And we see it all through the Western world. And they're judge, jury, and executioner in the sense that they exercise executive, judicial, and legislative power. And they're unelected, whether it's James Comey or John Brennan or James Clapper or Anthony Fauci. They're not accountable. So they lie with impunity under oath in many cases. And then we have evolutionaries, you have them in your country, but these are serious people that believe human nature is so malleable and progressive that the constitution, whether it's the electoral college or the nine person Supreme Court 
or the filibuster, all of these sacred traditions and customs, some of which are in the constitution, they want to junk because it doesn't give them the desired political result in the year 2021. And finally, and this I think was relevant to your British listeners with the Brexit vote. There's a big danger in this country that we have created sort of a bi-coastal elite that had the skills in the media, academia, insurance, finance, et cetera, that were globalized. So they had markets of 7 billion rather than 300 million in the last 30 years. And they became fabulously wealthy and influential. And confusing cause and effect, they sort of demonized the red state traditional American interior. And so we now have this ridiculous situation which people of that culture, and they're in politics, media, foundations, K through 12 administration, Wall Street, professional sports, Hollywood, they talk down to people. So Anthony Blinken says, we better ask the UN to adjudicate whether we're racist in the post George Floyd period, or the criminal court, international criminal court should adjudicate whether a colonel in Afghanistan was acting according to law. So this sort of outsourcing, sovereignty to the Klaus Schwab Great Reset Davos mentality is very dangerous. And I think people are pushing back across the Western world. I think all of in the context, as I say in the book, it's sort of a first worldism disease brought about by years of affluence and leisure and mediocre leadership in the West. And it's sort of right out of Petronius the Satyricon, to be frank about it. Yeah. Well, as you say, there was a hubristic assumption that globalization would make the world look a lot more like America. But as it turns out, it seems like America's looking a lot more like globalization. Yeah, I think so. I mean, we went to, we and our imperial arrogance went to Afghanistan to teach them civic identity. And we learned tribalism and identity politics, just like Pashtuns fighting, you know, Uzbeks. And then we, uh, we told them about the military's got to keep out of government. And then we found out that our own military, whether it's General Milley or General uh, Secretary, they're very politicized and they're interfering in government. And of course, we told them that they're a modern nation. You have to have a border with Pakistan or Iran. And of course, we have no borders ourselves. Sort of like your 19th century empire that brought civilization all over the world in a very successful manner. But at the heart in London, Dickens was writing, you know, David Copperfield. Yeah. I'd like to actually ask you about your sort of gloominess, if you were a gloomyometer. You seem to be quite far down the gloomy, the gloomy road. In my defense, I didn't call it the dead citizen, did I? No, no. You think there's still hope? Yeah, I do. This revolution was always a top-down revolution that unleashed bottom-up forces, but not bottom-up organization and political desires. So along the border, we see Mexican-American traditional communities that vote Democratic. They're voting conservative and Republican because they want a border. They want good schools. They want safety. They don't want people coming in that are unvaccinated when they're asked to be vaccinated. We're seeing the same phenomenon here. We're seeing people go to school boards and object to this transgendered force mandates. We're also seeing a lot of luminaries on the left. I mean, when our comedian Bill Maher, night after night, hammers the hypocrisies of identity politics, or a liberal economist like Larry Summers, of all people, warns that the economic agenda of Joe Biden is not sustainable, or Barack Obama uses that very phrase, non-sustainable for the border, 
I could go on. We had a lot of Democratic senators were very embarrassed to have to claim possession of the Afghanistan humiliation. So there are people in the Democratic process, Barry Weiss, the columnist at the New York Times, who say to themselves, we have been hijacked by Jacobins or Bolsheviks, mm. and they're going to do to us, to use an analogy in your country, what the radical socialist communists did to the Labor Party 15 years ago. Mm. So it's very similar. And the Labor Party began to lose elections. And uh, the people left of Tony Blair got in control for a while. Well, we, these people that we have here, I think, are more left-wing than your Michael Foot hard leftist. Is it like a, a more dramatic version, perhaps, of what happened with neoconservatism in the 70s and 80s, perhaps, when, you know, famously liberals mugged by reality. And now you see, when you look at someone like Barry Weiss, she is a, a liberal, a very American-style liberal. And she has been mugged by the reality of her experience at the New York Times and is now a kind of anti-woke crusader. Is, it, is there a sort of new right yes. emerging? It's a very good point, And it happens in two manifestations. There are the elite, like Barry Weiss and Bill Maher and college presidents that all of a sudden feel that at any moment, their office is going to be stormed, even though they encourage this revolution. And faculty members who now, when you talk to them, are scared stiff because this new fall class in our major elite universities, in some cases, use these racial quotas, not proportionally, but repertory. So they let in, let's say, 20% African-Americans rather than 12 or a large percentage of Latinos. And a lot of these people did not have the test scores and GPA of the white male class that they artificially reduced to about 13 to 14% of the university. So they ask themselves, well, if I grade in a certain pattern, will I be called racist? So there's the elite worry about this Stalinist agenda. But more importantly, if you look at the polls where Biden and the woke revolution is really hurting is in the, the middle class independent voter whether that's the so-called suburban soccer mom or just people who vote either Republican or Democrat, depending on their perceived self-interest. They went against Trump. They had been for Trump in 2016. They went against him by a small margin, but enough to really hurt him in the suburbs in 2020. And now they're overwhelmingly anti-Biden. And that's because, I guess, not to be too overdramatic, but they're afraid of what I would call systems collapse. And by that, I mean... If they live in Minneapolis or Seattle or Portland, they can't go downtown. Or if they take the subway in New York, they may witness a rape and won't intervene. Or if they're in Santa Monica, there's going to be violence on the street. And they know that it will not be prosecuted because of these woke federal attorneys and state attorneys. They also know that they will not have Christmas presents for the first time in their life. They cannot believe that here in the United States, it's a third world, empty shelf culture. They know that they've never paid this much for gasoline. I mean, it's really, when you go in California and you talk to poor people who have Mexican-American ancestry and they're driving and they tell you that they have to stop every three hours to get gas, they've never had this happen. And they get angry at the people who did that. Or if they go to the emergency room it won't work because of these mandates where people have been fired. And so there's a sense that we're systematically collapsing. And this is a non-ideological. In many, many of the independents' minds, they don't associate necessarily with Bolshevism or Jacobinism or wokeism, but they just say, whoever did this has to be punished. And the people we usually punish are in the White House. 
And do you think you call it the way uh, equality of opportunity has been replaced by equality of outcomes? Do you think the American middle class have a kind of innate sense of the righteousness of equality of opportunity and they can sense that their elites are turning on that? Yes, they do. And there's a lot of manifestations, again, to their anger about that. They don't know what this new word that's been recalibrated and renamed or redefined equity. Equity is what you're talking about. And we have this diversity, equity, inclusion mantra in all of our institutions. And it means that because of historical inequality, then we have to restrain the liberty and freedom of people. And that means in an economic sense, if you were successful, you are culpable. And we're going to, as Joe Biden said, make you pay your fair share. And we're gonna go after the successful people. And then, but what's new is it's now couched in repertory terms. These are reparations for prior generations, bias, et cetera. And therefore they're justified morally and ethically. And so there's not going to be a meritocracy because the meritocracy was the construct of the people in charge. So they really do believe that if you go out and steal $900 out of, you know, Target in San Francisco, that law was created by people who were wealthy that never do steal 900. So they don't know why anybody would. So it's called critical legal theory, critical race theory, uh, new monetary theory. They have theories for all of this anarchy. And I think a lot of people are saying, as I said earlier, this can't go on. And that that's what's what's disturbing, equality of opportunity. They always thought the United States was a quality of opportunity. Europe was a quality of result, continental Europe. Mm. And our revolution never had the word egalitarianism and fraternity as did France. It was all about give me liberty or give me death. It was freedom, it was liberty, you know, these two concepts, but it was never a quality. We said all men are created equal that is, they have the equal opportunity to succeed or fail. And then if they failed, we took it upon the wealthy by a variety of levers, shame, religion, community service to help them, but not to have the government steal the liberty and freedom of the citizens to enforce a Soviet-style egalitarianism on And then people said, you know what? They're never subject to the, the ramifications of their own ideology. Look at Nancy Pelosi. She's in a gated estate. She's got a $20,000 refrigerator. She breaks quarantine. Or they say to Joe Biden, pay your fair share. But his son is actively grifting the Chinese at a 10% cut from a Chinese company. He he didn't pay $500,000 in necessary taxes when he was out of office as vice president. So there's a sense that these bi-coastal elites talk down to us but they never uh, follow their own nostril. Meanwhile, they seem to be imposing, as you argue, uh, an ideology that is developed in American academia. And I'd like to ask you, lastly, as an academic yourself, in Britain, we feel we're, we're sort of downstream, perhaps, from American academia and the progressive insanities of it. I suppose conservatives in Britain hope that American academia also has a kind of counterbalance and that you are able to you know, form your own universities, create your own institutions. Do you have hope for a recovery of, of sanity in American academia? Only if enough of us speak up. I know at the Hoover Institution at Stanford, where I am, three of us, one of whom was a British subject, Neil Ferguson and Scott Atlas, the advisor, and myself were attacked by the Stanford faculty Senate for a number of thought crime. And we stood you know, firm and, and replied in kind and they, they let go, but it wasn't easy. But everybody has to stand up according to their station and speak out. 
there is an irony that if you look at the original origins of critical race theory, critical theory in general, critical legal theory, new monetary theory, all of these theories that justify the madness, and they all started in academia, and nobody took them seriously 20 years, but they filter into the left, and then every once in a great while the left, whether it's after the Great Depression or the 2008 meltdown, the left takes power. Everybody says, where they come from? But they actually came from the Frankfurt School in Germany, and you could make the Lacan, Derrida, Foucault, postmodernists. But the difference is that when these things are imported in their original incubation in Europe, the Europeans sort of see them as amusing or court minstrels or court jesters, and they don't permeate quite society. The Europeans have a sense of aristocracy and tradition, even on the left. But when they come over here, they kind of fuse with this populist American education that everybody's going to go to college. And there's no such thing as a natural elite. And we're, you know, the, the common man and the middleman. So they get into the, the huge multi-trillion dollar educational complex. And when they beam back over to you guys, they're mainstream and they're wealthy and they've got the Guggenheim Foundation and the MacArthur Foundation and they've got the college presence of Harvard and Yale and they've got, and it's just everywhere. So it's sort of like Europeans said, hey, you guys over there, you yokels, you should try what we're doing. It's a funny little pastime. And we said, yeah. So our academics said, wow, this is funny. There are no facts. White male Christian heterosexuals are the, the bane of civilization. But <laughs> you kind of infected the whole system and you had no idea how our monster is much bigger than yours. And then they're coming back and devouring you. And I don't know who's culpable, you guys for infecting us or us for empowering it and making it mainstream with all of the economic and political and cultural power of the United States. So you've created your own Frankenstein monster and it's devouring you, but it's, it's devouring us as well. I think it's quite a lot of blame to be shared across the Atlantic. Uh, Victor, thank you so much for joining us. I hope we can get you on again, perhaps before the midterms. Yes, that'd be great. Be happy to. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much for listening to that episode of Americano. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe. And if you really enjoyed it, please leave us a star rating, preferably five stars, and a review.